we have developed a series, a Sunday sermon series, where we're gonna look at the cast of Christmas. This morning we're gonna consider the role of the prophets and how they point us to the coming Christ. And then next week we'll look at uh, the role of the angels in the story. Then we'll look at the shepherds in a couple of weeks. And then the wise men or the magi as they referred to the Sunday before Christmas. And then on Christmas Eve, and I hope you'll come and be a part of our Christmas Eve service, we'll focus on our part in that story, how we relate to the Christmas celebration. Now to make our Christmas Eve service, I guess something that you can take advantage of, we've actually planned three services, one at four, one at five, one at six, there'll be about 40 minutes in length. We absolutely want you to attend and we would encourage you to think about extending the invitation to your family. We've planned the three services so that we can have the maximum number of people participate. And I mentioned that to you now because now's the time that you need to begin maybe extending some invitations for people to be a part of that notable evening. But our prayer, as I've said, is that we not become distracted, that our hearts instead are encouraged day by day as we make our way toward Christmas. Now, one of the things that we're providing to you to help promote that is a devotional guide. We made them available last Sunday, and they're on the tables as you leave this morning on the right and the left. We're suggesting one per household. We don't have enough for every individual to have one, but one per household. But we want you to take it home so that day by day you begin to read. Uh, in fact, if you're wondering how it works, just follow the days of December and read whatever that day is, the number that's uh, indicated there. Today's December 1st, and so you'll read the first devotional reading maybe this afternoon. And then tomorrow you'll go to number two. Now, we want you to do that so that again, day by day, you don't become distracted. We're wanting you to experience the season of Advent in a way that lifts your heart. Now, why Advent? In the last couple of years, I've admitted to you, growing up as a child, Advent wasn't something I was that familiar with. But let that not throw you off. Advent, the season of Advent, is really based upon a Latin word called Adventus, which simply means coming. The word Advent is pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. And believers and followers of Jesus have been remembering Advent for centuries. Indeed, the first reference to Advent takes you all the way back to the fourth century AD. Now, I have to acknowledge that initial emphasis of Advent was for new believers. Later in our second service, we're gonna have someone who will be baptized. Now, we had someone celebrate their faith last week in this service, but back in the fourth century, Advent was a time of preparation through the month of December for new believers as they were preparing for baptism. They would be baptized on the day of Epiphany, which was January the 6th. But a couple of centuries pass and they recognize, you know what, it may be beneficial for more than just new believers to kind of focus on preparation. And so they expanded the focus to involve the whole church. And they wanted the church through the month of December, December to emphasize the coming of Jesus. What's fascinating is back in the 6th century, 
their focus was not on the first coming of Jesus in Bethlehem. Advent originally was a time for the church to focus on the second coming of Jesus. When we know, as the Bible declares, that he will gloriously, dramatically return. And so, in the sixth century, that's what the church would do. They would focus on what God's word declares, Jesus is coming, Advent, Jesus is coming. Well, by the Middle Ages, the church adjusted Advent still again, and they began to link it primarily with the first coming of Jesus, his birth in Bethlehem. Now, let me stress, I don't think they were taking their eyes off of the second coming. Instead, I think the motivation is this. If we will focus on the fact that Jesus made a promise that Jesus would come, he came, we can be confident then that he will then return. A promise given, promise kept, assures us that he will fulfill the future promise that Jesus is coming. So see, Advent Spiritually speaking, is a wonderfully helpful season. It enables us to focus on the coming of Jesus. In Bethlehem, the coming of Jesus when he returns. Now, the devotional guide will move you through that in a thoughtful kind of way. In recent years, I've also promoted what we refer to as the Advent wreath. I like physical activities sometimes to drive home spiritual lessons. And the Advent wreath walks you through the four Sundays of December to constantly help you refocus on Jesus. I think that's particularly helpful for families that are trying to influence their children with understanding. Again, uh, a child is going to be mesmerized by the activity of lighting a candle and talking about the significance of that candle. Just as an aside, those of you that are parents or grandparents, Victoria and our children's ministry has developed some additional activities for Advent. There's a table outside the children's room down the hallway where you'll find in a small little box some various things that you might do, even beyond an Advent wreath, to help your children participate. And I'd encourage you to take advantage of that. But personally, I like the wreath. My wife decorated yesterday, and we put our Advent wreath on our our kitchen table. And from Sunday to Sunday, we will light a candle to remind us of we're moving toward Christmas, and we are being reminded of the spiritual significance of that. I'm not saying you have to run out to Hobby Lobby and have an Advent wreath, but I, I like the activity of it. And incidentally, it's also rooted in, I think, the church's attempt to teach the meaning of Christmas. Uh, Johann Wilkern was the developer of what we know as the Advent wreath, and uh, he was an urban missionary in Hamburg, Germany, and he was reaching out to children, and he established a, a ministry to, to the poor children there in Hamburg. And whenever December would come, they would often say, you know, I can't wait till Christmas gets here, as any child would would say. And so he thought he would develop a way of helping them kind of make their way toward the celebration, but emphasize spiritual lessons along the way. Now, what what Johann decided to do is he took an old wagon cartwheel and he decorated it with greenery and he put 24 white candles around the, the wagon wheel and then four red, oh, I got that reversed, 24 red candles and four white candles around the, the, the wagon wheel. And so the children with each day, as they move through December, they would light one of the candles. It kind of helped them focus. 
and they could see that Christmas was coming with the lighting of each candle. Now again, our wreath doesn't have 28 candles, it just has the four. We'll be emphasizing the four Sundays. But do things that will help you focus on why we celebrate Christmas. Don't allow yourself to be kind of driven along by the really secularization of our celebration. Returning to our wreath, let me emphasize, we've already lit the initial candle. Some would point to the first candle actually being the prophet's candle. It's the candle that reminds us that for centuries, God pointed to the coming birth of Jesus. That didn't happen kind of in a secretive way. For centuries, God was trying to prepare his people for what he would ultimately do in sending his son to Bethlehem. I don't know how familiar you are with Old Testament prophecy. Some people uh, have a, a great fascination about prophecies in the Old Testament. If you were to read from Genesis to Malachi, some have told that there may be as many as 300 prophecies that point to Jesus Christ. Now think about that. We're not talking about three or four. As many as 300? Do realize they're not all pointing to his birth. Some of, are describing his life his suffering, his death. You want to read one of the prophecies surrounding his death, read the prophecies of Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, very descriptive of how Jesus would die. There are also prophecies in the Old Testament that likewise point to his future coming. The prophet Daniel, he points us to what will happen when Jesus dramatically returns. See, all of that's in the Old Testament. God would work in ways to reveal what would be. Now, there are some examples of prophecies that God made note himself. Uh, perhaps the very first prophecy in all of Scripture is found in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve turned away from God in their rebellion and sin, God spoke a word prophetically. And he said to Eve that, her offspring would ultimately crush the serpent's head, bruise it, as some translations might read. Many think that that's pointing us to none other than Jesus Christ. That in Genesis 3.15, God is already prophesying, declaring what would be with the coming birth of Jesus Christ. Later, as you read through Genesis, God makes another prophecy known, if you want to consider it that way. It's found in Genesis 22. He's relating to a man by the name of Abraham, and Abraham has come to trust in God. God has, in an unexpected way, provided Abraham and Sarah a child in their old age. But in Genesis 22, following an event in, in Abraham's life that would certainly challenge his devotion, he responds in faith and trust. You know what God declares? He, in essence, declares now, from your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. He's pointing us to Jesus. 
See, God wanted us to know in advance that he was working on our behalf. Now, the prophets, though, are those individuals through which God would make these types of revelations known. I think maybe one of the most well-known prophets, and I mentioned his book just a few minutes ago, uh, is the prophet Isaiah. You want to get into the prophecy surrounding Jesus. Isaiah speaks of Jesus' birth. He speaks of Jesus' life. He speaks of Jesus' death. And he did so, many think, over 600 years before any of that happened. Consider the testimony concerning his birth. This is a familiar verse to us at this time of year. Isaiah 7, 14 reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now some would say this message had a relevance to the people of Isaiah's day. I wouldn't disagree with that, but you need to know through the prophet God is pointing us to Jesus Christ. And we know that as strongly as we do because of what's described in Matthew's gospel in the opening chapter. It describes how an angel appears to Joseph who's betrothed to Mary. They're engaged and he becomes aware that she's now with child and He's trying to calculate the, the meaning of that and what he would do. And an angel in a dream appears to Joseph. Listen to what is recorded in Matthew 1.20. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle, you see. God is entering into the experience of man's suffering. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I don't know if someone's here today because maybe you were invited. Last week, we encouraged our attenders to invite someone to start this Advent season by participating. And maybe you're here today because of that. And you're wondering, really, why do we spend the time that we do emphasizing Jesus' birth and his future coming? I think this verse reveals why. Jesus came to deal with our greatest problem, which is what? The guilt of our sin. The judgment for our sin. And whoever will respond to Jesus for who he is has the opportunity to be immediately forgiven. Just three weeks ago, remember we looked at a message where Jesus reached out to Peter after his embarrassing failure. And we realized Jesus desires to restore. Well, what you may not know is after the second service, we had a young man come up after the service had already ended and approached one of our counselors at the front. He and his grandmother. And he said to the counselor, I, I want to accept Jesus. I want to trust in him. And she sat down with him and explained to him what that meant. And before he left, he responded. He believed in Jesus. Well, this last week, I got to sit down with Hayden and talk even more about it. And we celebrated his faith in Jesus. And here's the deal. Forgiveness from God is received like a gift. It's not something that you earn. And talking with Hayden, I, I wear a wristband. I put it on each morning to remind me of what I've received as a gift, which is life and forgiveness because of Jesus. Talked with him about that. Said, you don't earn forgiveness, you accept it. 
You experience it by faith. Well, in the second service, we'll be celebrating Hayden's faith. But you see, we celebrate Christmas because the one who was born came to save us from our sin. The angel didn't stop there. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See the correlation? 600 years before, the prophet declared one would be born. And now he is. But this isn't the only prophecy concerning the birth of Jesus. There's another one that I think kind of attracts the mind. It's found in the Old Testament writings of the prophet Micah. Micah 5.2. Listen to what is recorded. Micah, incidentally, was a contemporary of Isaiah, a younger contemporary. So we're talking about 600 years or so prior to the birth of Jesus. Listen to what is said. But you... O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me, God is speaking through the prophet, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. The prophet Micah says the one who will be born, this promised child, will be born in the most unlikely of places, an obscure, insignificant village called Bethlehem. Well, you read in the Gospel of Luke, and you recognize Micah is prophesying about what would be. Or you see Joseph having decided to remain committed to Mary after he was aware of her condition, He was of the line of David, which takes him back to to Bethlehem. And and the government was requiring a census, so he had no choice but to travel there. Listen to what's recorded. You know the story, Luke 2, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the end. Now again, we know this story, but please understand, before Jesus was ever laid in the manger in Bethlehem. Micah declared he will be born in Bethlehem. I marvel over how God works through the activities of world leaders and others to accomplish his unfolding purpose and plan. I marvel how God chooses to, to accomplish great things in the most insignificant of places. Now, Can I even go further with that? I marvel how God is seeking to do great things even through the most insignificant of people. Which maybe that's the way we feel sometimes. See, God points us through the prophet of what he is able to do. 
which raises a, a question in my mind, and I, I'm, I'm often when I'm reading through the Bible, I just ask questions. Well, why? Why prophecies? I mean, if you think about it, God could have just had Jesus come onto the scene without any early prophetic revelations. Why did he go out of the way to, to reveal prophecies? And if you think about Abraham, the prophecy was revealed to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus was born. Why do that? Just to show that he can? <laughs> I don't think so. In fact, I'm convinced the reason the prophets are so important and the prophecies in the Old Testament are so important is because they point us to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. They identify how Jesus is not just another person who's come onto the scene. For millennia, God was pointing to the birth of his son. There's no one like him. And we celebrate his birth because that is true. There's no one like him. There's a gentleman, Peter Stoner. He's the head of mathematics and astronomy for Pasadena College. He thought, what I'll do is I want to study the mathematical probability that the prophecies of the Old Testament might be fulfilled. And though I say there may be over 200 or 300, uh, he decided all I'm going to do is focus on eight. I want to calculate the probability of eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person. You know what he concluded from that? That the likelihood of that is one to 10 in the 17th power. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. I'm not that mathematically minded, but he writes in a periodical called uh, Science Speaks. Listen to his assessment of this, and this can help us appreciate why prophecies are so significant. He writes, let us try to visualize this chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all of the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. Okay, I, I can follow that. Suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power, silver dollars, that's how many silver dollars we're talking, and lay them on the face of the state of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep in silver dollars. Now, mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man, tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man for their day to the present time, providing that they wrote using their own wisdom. His point is, it's just almost sheer impossibility. Which points to the uniqueness of Jesus, doesn't it? Again, if you're here as a guest, if you're not really sure what to make of Jesus, just think about that alone. I mean, for centuries, people have been pointing to him. And we celebrate that at Christmas. But there's more than that. I think when you consider the prophecies, the prophecies were given also to impart hope. 
And sometimes life can become dark, can become challenging, even disturbing. And yet, as you read through the Old Testament, frequently God would speak prophetically, particularly concerning Jesus, to offer hope, to impart hope. Now, I said some refer to the first of the Advent candles as the prophet candle. Others refer to it as the hope candle because, you see, it's really one and the same. The prophets were pointing to what God was pledging to do. It was intended to lift the heart for us to know God's not blind to the situation. He's not indifferent. He is acting. In fact, the matter is, when we talk about prophecies, they're really more than prophecies, aren't they? I mean, we can say they're prophecies, but they're more than. They're actually promises. I mean, when God said to Eve in Genesis 3, from your offspring one will come that will bruise the serpent's head, yeah, he's prophesying, but he's really laying out a promise that he intends to keep. When he spoke to Abraham in Genesis 22 and says, listen, from your offspring, one will come who will bless all of the nations of the world. Yes, you could say it's prophetic, but truth is it's a promise. A promise that God intends to keep. When he speaks to Isaiah and says, one will be born of a virgin. Yeah, it's a prophecy. It's more than that. It's a promise. God says this will be And I I stress it that way because, see, it's that where we find our hope. When we find the prophecies of God in Scripture, what we need to consider them to be is a promise that God will fulfill. When the Bible declares that Jesus is going to return, say that's a prophecy. It's more than. It's a promise. And since we celebrate God keeping his first promise surrounding Jesus, shouldn't that give us a greater expectation concerning the second? He is coming. It's a promise. One of the great chapters of faith in all of the New Testament is Hebrews chapter 11, and it describes faith this way. Listen to the testimony. Hebrews verse 1, chapter 11 reads, Now faith is the assurance of things, notice, hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you read on in the 11th chapter, you come to discover what's being described here is how God reveals his intention, his promise, his prophecy, what will be, and a person of faith acts on that. You have this confidence about what will be which then affects what you do. Uh, As I look at this testimony and look at the lives of of people of faith, I think the lesson is this. We live our lives based upon what has been revealed by God. Or we should. Shouldn't we? God's made prophecies, promises. And we, as individuals of faith, live our life based on that. So that when we find ourselves in the midst of the challenges that confound us, we recognize where he's made a promise, I can now build my life upon that promise. I know Jesus is coming. 
you read through the New Testament, maybe it won't surprise you. The New Testament talks more about Jesus' second coming than with his birth in Bethlehem. It's pointing us to what will be. Jesus comes in power and authority to affect our lives for all of eternity. We live our lives based on then what's revealed to us by faith. We're responding to these things. I want you to actively read through the devotional so that day by day, that's what you're beginning to do. You you live your life based on what has been revealed in God's word. I admit to you, Sometimes when we look at that, we realize it involves waiting, right? How do you do with waiting? I mean, I, don't, I think with most folks, we, we don't do very well with waiting, do we? I mean, in our society today, waiting might be the most impossible thing for some people to do. I've been watching some of the videos based on Black Friday where people couldn't even wait to get into a store, scare the fool out of me. But see, it's so characteristic of kind of where our culture's gone. Waiting isn't something that we do naturally, isn't it? Um, it's hard, especially if I find myself in the midst of a challenge. That's where I think Johan Wilkern's approach to the, to the Advent wreath was so helpful. It tried to break it down. See, sometimes if we're looking too far off, we lose sight of God's activity in the present. If I think he's indifferent about my current situation, then I couldn't be more than wrong. He cares about where I'm at. Yes, I know Jesus is coming, but he wants me to to focus in practical ways on his promise now. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. We light a candle of understanding in our heart each day as we focus on a promise that affects us. We live, you see, based upon what has been revealed. It illuminates our understanding, which then can alter my perspective. Now, let me be clear. I don't think when we speak of hope that it's all wrapped up in Jesus' glorious return. I think we will experience the fulfillment of hope sometimes in the here and now. Now, the timing is the Lord's. I like how Peter, as he's writing one of his letters, says we need to humble ourselves before the Lord, and at the right time, he will exalt us. The implication is that there will be these instances as we're living with this understanding that he intervenes and and lifts us up. Now, Peter quickly adds, now casting all our cares on him because he cares for you. It's not that I'm silent as I'm waiting, I'm calling, I'm crying, I'm seeking, but see, I'm living with this realization that God keeps his promises. And as I would read from God's word, as this devotional guide would point me to do so, what I'm doing is I'm lighting a candle of understanding that helps me move through whatever I'm facing. The season of Advent is all about the coming. My desire for us as we make our way slowly toward Christmas is that our eyes of faith will be opened and our hearts will be affected.
So what's my appeal to you in, in closing? First, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, he was born to save us from our sin. Why wouldn't you trust in him like Hayden did just three weeks ago? Realize I want what Jesus alone can provide. So maybe that's a response for someone here today. But for most of us, as we've already received that gift, then here's my appeal to you. Let's make the month of December matter. Let's not be distracted. Using this, coming to worship, doing things that we can do together. Let's keep our eyes of faith open and live this month of December knowing that Jesus is at work with us. Let me pray for us toward that end. Father, I thank you for the attentiveness of each person here. I pray that you would encourage us now as we would respond for that individual who's yet to trust in who Jesus is as the Savior. I pray today has moved them one step closer to saying yes to him. Lord, encourage them in a way that might bring further understanding. But for the greater number of us who have received the gift, may the month of December be a time where our hearts increasingly are filled with hope that we live based upon what has been revealed. That we know a prophecy is a promise given, a promise that will be kept. Help us toward that very end. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.